Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So welcome again to St. James. My name is Father Micah. I hang around St. James. I'm the Catholic chaplain of Dulles Airport. In case you want to find me over there, I have the Ministry of Presence. I don't have any administration at the airport, just presence. And so let us place ourselves in the presence of God. Merciful Father, we thank you for the great gift you have given to us two millenniums ago, the gift of our church. Today we observe the annual birthday of the church, that we go out into all the world and evangelize. We ask you to be with us as we listen and learn. We ask you to bless our families, our endeavors. We ask you to bless those who have made this evening possible. We ask you to bless all our sick family members and our deceased family members. And we pray as Jesus taught us, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. Uh, as you see on the screen, we are being broadcast broadcast on EWTN right now. Uh, and some of you were asking if you could have audio. So, um, Melanie, could you go ahead and turn that on? You see, the new evangelization, Father Benedict, is... I just put this on the screen to whet your appetite. This will be rebroadcast on EWTN tomorrow morning at, what, 9 a.m., I believe? But it will also be broadcast on our website, so you can watch it there, uh, as well as on EWTN's website. Um, this is not the same interview that we did a year ago. I was invited back to do a second interview on the new evangelization, so I hope I said a few things differently and, and valuable enough for you to go back and, and watch and listen. Father Paul, please welcome back Father Paul Schenk. Thank you, Deacon. Hag Hasmer. Hag Hasmer. <laughs> Happy holiday to you. Holy day. Uh, today, the feast, Shavuot. Shavuot, uh, the feast of the sevens, the seven weeks since uh, Pesach. Today, the gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we gather tonight to open our hearts, our minds, our souls to the Word of God uh, so that we can learn more of Him. And we do so by exploring these first encyclicals of the Church. St. Peter, writing to us this evening, the Universal Church, the Church not bound by time. Now, last week I gave to you a syllabus with the notes. There are some typos there. You'll excuse me, I'm doing this on my own with just my office assistant. Tonight is no different. Some typos. I have an insert for you. Did we already distribute those? They will slip into the covers that you have from last week, and we'll just fill these out. God willing, each week we'll fill them out and you'll have the notes, so I just want you to have those. Sometimes it's difficult just to keep tracking the information 
And I know as the evening goes on and I begin to start getting the warning signals from the deacon, I speed up and jam it in. So please, I don't want to exasperate you. I have the notes printed for you. So tonight I want to return to where we left off last week, to the Paschal theme that lay behind the first letter of uh, Shimon Kepha, of Peter. And uh, as we progress through the flow of the letter, we will see emerge this Paschal theme as Peter rehearses Haggadah, uh, or the Passover tale, which provides the backdrop for this exhortation. Now, I want, in the interest of full disclosure here, you're not going to read the Passover tale, but the echoes of it are very much present. Now, why would St. Peter not explicitly refer to the Passover? Perhaps because he is speaking to a broader audience. Remember we said that this is the church made of Jews and Gentiles. But the heart of the Paschal story is there. Now, Haggadah is the telling of the story of the Exodus, which is recited at the Passover to remind the Israelites how God delivered them from Egyptian slavery and brought them to the Promised Land. The first clue to this Passover or Pesach in Peter's writing is the reference to the sprinkled blood. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, 1 Peter 1 and 2. And so I'll read it from the English column of the interlinear Bible. Who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Now, we compare that to Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to be going between two Bibles for the Old Testament tonight. I have just a few copies left of the column-by-column column Hebrew and English Tanakh. Uh, this is the current modern translation, which is used in the Jewish community, and it has both the Hebrew and the English in it. And then I'm going to be using the new translation of the Septuagint, the Septuagint being the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament, and this new translation of the Septuagint, the first new translation in a hundred years, or even longer, recently published by Oxford University Press. So I'll be using that as well. So we want to compare 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, the reference to the sprinkling of the blood, to Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 and 12, and I'm going to read it to you from the New English translation of the Septuagint. This, uh, the Bible which would have been known by the Hellenistic Jews and the Hellenes within the church. And they shall take some of the blood and shall put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel in the houses, whichever they eat them in. And then verse 12 that follows, just to give you the context here, and I will pass through in the land of Egypt on this night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land, Egypt from human being to animal, and on all the gods of the Egyptians I will execute vengeance. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be for you as a sign on the houses there where you are, and I will see the blood, and I will protect you. Directly from the Haggadah from the Passover story in the book of Exodus, to use the Greek, Shemot, to use the Hebrew. Now, for Peter, this blood is of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. And we compare to Exodus chapter 12, 
verses 4 and 5. And this one I will read from the translation of the Hebrew. The 12th chapter of Exodus, verses 4 and 5. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons, and you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, this language, which includes the themes of promise, protection, and inheritance, if we look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable. So this language of promise of protection and inheritance recalls the Passover from Egyptian slavery and suffering there to the promised land. And we find that in Exodus 12, 24, and 25. As I grow older, the print keeps getting smaller. <laughs> you shall observe this as an institution for all time, for you and for your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall observe this right. Now, the exhortation which begins in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 18, relies on the Old Testament prophecies, the readiness for action. Now, this is what sets us up for the Paschal or Passover theme, the readiness for action. In Exodus 12 and verse 11, this is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. So the readiness for action and movement toward the fulfillment of the promise is a key element in this Pesach the movement, the Passover, the exodus, the deliverance. 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring when he is revealed. So this movement is very important. In the letters of Aristobulus, a Hellenistic Jewish corpus of writings preserved by the early church historian Eusebius, the Passover is called the Feast of Crossings, Teton Diabaterion Iorte. Diabaterion is this unusual word that is used again with much greater emphasis in Philo of Alexandria, the great Hellenistic Jewish-Greek philosopher and theologian who called the Passover diabasis, or diabasis, sorry, I put the emphasis there in the wrong place, the passage. For Philo, it is an allegory of the passage of the human soul from bondage to the passions to freedom from them. Let's just compare 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who has called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So as I said last week, Philo finds inspiration in his etymology of the Hebrew word Pesach, which he translates in Greek as Pascha, probably from the Aramaic term Pescha, which he understands as the transfer or the crossing. So he observes that a distinguishing characteristic of the Passover 
is that all the people, men, women, and children, act as priests in the Passover sacrifice. Now let me say that from the time of King David to the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb was a priestly action. The priests sacrificed the Passover lamb. But at the beginning in Exodus, it is a common priesthood which is exercised in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in the household by the head of the house. In this case, the elder of the clan would make the sacrifice. Uh, but this would eventually rise to a priestly sacrifice during the Davidic period and up till the destruction of the Second Temple. Now, we see this idea of deliverance from slavery to passions, which we just read here in 1 Peter, of ritual purity and of common priesthood, develop in 1 Peter 1, 18, through chapter 2 and verse 5. The Haggadah, the tale, continues with the admonition to the believers who are aliens, exiles, and slaves. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 through 25. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. So you see here that the language reflects this idea of being alien and exiled. We compare Exodus chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. When, in time to come, your son asks you, saying, what does this mean? Now, this is part of the Passover Seder, the liturgy, when the child begins the question, Why is tonight unlike all other nights? Why is tonight different? So when your son asks you this question, you shall say to him, it is with a mighty hand that the Lord brought us out from Egypt, the house of bondage, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord slew every firstborn in the land of Egypt, the firstborn of both man and beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord every first male issue of the womb, but redeem every firstborn among my sons. Very powerful. But here again, this illusion. We can hear the Haggadah in the heart and mind of Peter as he writes, echoing uh, this backdrop of the Passover in the letter. Now let's pause for a moment to consider the common priesthood, which begins with baptism. The high priesthood of Christ began at the moment of his conception. Now I'm reading from Crofts, The Fullness of the Sacrifice. His life from the crib to the cross was a most holy offering of obedience to his eternal Father. The character of baptism associates the Christian with this priestly life and death of the incarnate Word. The Christian life is thus endowed with what St. Thomas calls the character of Christ. By reason of that association, each member of the mystic body in sanctifying grace may say with St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The sacramental character opens up the soul to a direct participation in those acts of the man-God which belong essentially to his priesthood especially in his most sublime act of self-immolation to his eternal Father. The priesthood of Christ is unceasing. Through the character of baptism, every Christian is enabled to do with Christ, through his ordained minister, what Christ himself does. St. Peter, who describes the faithful as living stones of our great spiritual house, which is the church of God, 
exhorts them to appreciate their sharing in the priesthood of Christ. The new priestliness of life bestowed by Jesus Christ is far more perfect than that which was lost by Adam. It reaches to the summit of its perfection when the faithful are gathered around the altar in the supreme spiritual sacrifice of the Mass. Seeing the nature of this sacrifice, it is necessary that some character should mark off those who belong to Christ and have a vital part in the offering. Without this sharing in the power of the offering, the faithful at Mass would be but external witnesses of a religious ceremony, which would belong exclusively as a sacrificial act to the priestly caste. Now, this Paschal theme, this theme of priestly sacrifice is essential to understanding the role of Christ's sacrifice in Peter's soteriology, Peter's teaching on salvation. The movement from slavery to passions, which separates us from God, to freedom from sin, which begins at baptism and continues throughout the sacramental life grounded as it is and deriving its full force from the paschal sacrifice of Christ as both priest and victim dominates Peter's exhortation. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body Tozulon, on the tree. Now you're looking at the RSV translation and most others, and you'll have it as the cross. And yes, Zulon can refer, the Greek, to the cross, but it is most accurately the tree. Now this is very important. Uh, we're going to see this a moment from now. So just make a mark in your mind. If you're looking at the interlinear Bible, you'll see there Directly across from the English column in the right side, you'll see the translation, body of him on the tree. Now I want you to make a mental note of that at least, so that I can return to it in just a little while. Alright, so this is the theme of the Passover. From suffering and slavery, far from the land of promise, to true freedom in righteousness, we are healed by his bodily wounds. Now all of this is echoing the Paschal sacrifice. We're going to continue to see this develop. Once again, Crofts. I think Crofts examines this with such beauty. In every Mass, Christ as head of the church is always the principal minister and offerer, just as his body is the center of the mystic body, which is the whole temple of God. The ordained priest at the altar is the juridically appointed and visible minister who takes the place of the invisible high priest, who through the priestly active power of his minister becomes really present once again at the moment of consecration. By means of his priestly association, each Christian physically present and devoutly associating himself with the divine action of Christ and his priest at the altar, is swept into the might and power of the one priest and the one victim, who in offering himself offers also all men to the Father. In the Mass, Jesus the Head raises the entire mystic body as a pleasing offering to the divine majesty of God. Every Christian is enabled by his personal cooperation to enter into the divine action of the Savior and clothed in the merits of his passion and death to participate in this sacrificial act and to offer himself together with the all-holy victim of God. As a result of this cooperative offering with Christ, the abyss between ourselves and God is bridged 
and all the fruits of his passion and death are poured out upon us. When we assist devoutly at Holy Mass, we ascend the heights of the mysteries of God until we arrive at a point nearest heaven itself. Nothing on earth, though it be the work of God himself, can be holier or more efficacious than this union with Christ in the renewal of his sacrifice. It is the never-ending miracle of the divine omnipotence and love. And St. Augustine boldly declares, All wise though he be, God knows nothing better. All powerful though he be, he can do nothing more excellent. Infinitely rich though he be, he has nothing more precious to give than the most holy Eucharist. Now I'm just going to jump ahead because I've selected quite a large reading here. You'll have this in print. But let me just quickly uh, summarize this. Its primary purpose is not the personal sanctification of the priest himself, though it presupposes it, but the building up of the mystic body of Christ, the feeding of the sheep, the saving and sanctification of souls, all purchased with the blood of Christ. I think this is a beautiful backdrop to Peter's language, which we saw begins this portion with a reference to the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, and then we're going to return to that in just a little while. The institution of the Passover, as we said, is given in Exodus, and it would become one of the great festivals of the nation of Israel. In time, changes would take place in the way it's celebrated compared with its first celebration, but the Seder, or the service of the Passover, which consists primarily in the main of the Haggadah, or the tale, remains the chief form of observance even today. The centerpiece of the Haggadah is the sacrifice of the Lamb, which remained the key component until the first century when it was replaced with the matzah, the unleavened bread. The essential content of the Eucharist is what Jesus called the anamnesis, the Greek word for the Hebrew zakhor, the memorial. And so it is the commemoration of Christ, which in the Eucharist plays the role of the Haggadah, or of the Passover Seder. The words of remembrance, the essence of the Eucharistic liturgy, invite participants into the reenactment that transmits us to the place where Christ our Passover, as priest and victim, offers up his own sacrifice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is the Passover then that presages and prescribes the ultimate salvation which Christ makes available and which opens the door to the holy living which St. Peter admonishes us in regard to, which is the theme now of the first part of his letter. So we see then that the main body of Peter's letter consists of the Haggadah. Now I want to expand on this, and I'm going to take away the ha, the h, the definite article, and speak for a moment of Agada. You'll see this in print, so you don't have to wrestle with its transliteration. The agada is a rabbinical homiletic device that serves as commentary on biblical narrative. Agada explains and explicates the meaning of a biblical tale or story. And Peter explains salvation through this form of Agada. So he begins in the first chapter, verse 3, to the second chapter, verse 10, with the germ, if you will, of the Pope's role as supreme teacher of faith and morals, so that he's intertwining the essence of the faith, which has its heart in the Paschal sacrifice, its center, its grounding, but he weaves into it then how this works out as a Christian life, 
So you'll notice that there are these sublime references to Christ as lamb, the sprinkling of his blood, and the paschal sacrifice of priest and victim echoed here. But then at the very same time, Peter is exhorting us to holy living, to separation, deliverance from our passions, which war with the Spirit of Christ. And so we see here that a beautiful balance and harmony between the doctrine of the faith and the practice of the faith in our own lives. So faith and morals. Now Peter describes a new and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says that this is an inheritance which anticipates a salvation ultimately to be revealed at the end of days. And so he portrays the Christian life as a journey, a passage through the desert of suffering and death leading to the promised land of eternal life. This is the Pascha, the crossing. Now Peter says that the holy prophets foresaw this salvation by the Holy Spirit who testified before of Christ's suffering and glory. Augustine tells us that this is the fulfillment of a promise again, the idea of motion, of movement, of moving toward the beloved, that love moves us in this journey toward the fulfillment of God's promise. And so Peter instructs his readers to be holy and to move from their former way of life in unbelief and paganism. So once again, he's addressing the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. And he reminds them that God judges each person's work. And so they need to be mindful of this as they live out their journey. So here again is the Pascha the Passover tale and its meaning, Agada. They are redeemed, those to whom Peter writes, from slavery to sin by the blood of the Lamb who is without spot or blemish. Now, let me read you a portion of Exodus again, chapter 12, from the New English translation of the Septuagint. Let me refer to it and I'll highlight it because it's, uh, it's 10 verses, quite a lengthy passage here. Let me just refer to it for the time being. Exodus 12, 3 through 13. Now, from here on in, I will use Pascha, Pesach, Passover, and Exodus interchangeably. They all refer to the Passover Haggadah, or the tale. Now, in 1 Peter 1, 22 through chapter 2 and verse 3, that portion of Peter's letter, he refers to the souls that are purified by obedience to the truth. And he tells them that they have been born again through the word of God. And they are like newborn babies fed on spiritual milk the rabbis characterized Israel coming out of the desert in the Exodus as born again. The infant Israel led and fed by God, the manna, the supernatural food in the wilderness, and the water that came from the rock, which we are later told was Christ, and this all took place in the wilderness. And here again is Peter's illusion. We can imagine him reflecting on the Exodus as it's told in the Passover Haggadah. The descriptions of Israel in chapter 2 and verses 4 through 10 
we can hear the descriptions of Israel in the Exodus, which are now applied to the church. They are called a chosen race. And we find Israel coming forth from Egyptian bondage, called a chosen race in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6 and chapter 10 and verse 15. I'll read that to you here. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be for him an exceptional people more than all the nations on the face of the earth. And then Israel is also called, the newborn Israel is also called a royal priesthood and a holy nation in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5 and 6. And now, if by paying attention you listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be for me a people special above all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be for me a royal priesthood and a holy nation. These words you shall say to the sons of Israel. So it is Israel born anew through the Exodus, the Passover Haggadah. It's exactly this phraseology that Peter appropriates and uses to describe the newborn church. And so once again, the Passover Haggadah echoes through Peter's words. Now let's move ahead very quickly to chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3 and verse 12. In this section, Peter relates Christ's Passover to their lives how they should now live. So we read 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. So Peter's readers are like the Israelites in Egypt. They're to live as witnesses to God's reality and so cause the unbelievers to glorify God as the Egyptians did in the Exodus. We often forget about the Egyptians in the Exodus. I had a shtick going for a few years where I had a student of mine where I taught uh, I taught uh, uh, biblical studies, and uh, I had a student who was an Egyptian national from a Coptic family. And uh, he and I would travel together for a number of years, and we would do Passover seders. It was just a great shtick, you know, shtiklach. We had the Egyptian and the Jew, uh, and we would do the, you've never seen something so authentic. Uh, Dr. Samus Sadik. He lives part-time in Cairo and part-time in Cincinnati. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, <laughs> he, he has homes in two places. He's a very dear, very dear friend of mine, and we used to travel and do the Passover seders together. Uh, and we forget about the Egyptians, that the Scripture tells us they glorified God. See, So Peter, again, taking this thought from the Exodus... Israel living among the Egyptians, witnesses to God's true reality, and living their lives in such a way that will bring glory to him. And he now uses the same vivid imagery for the church living amidst the pagan world. In verses 13 through 17 of chapter 12, Peter tells his readers to obey the civil authority and to love the church and reverence God. Now we'll hurry through. As I said, when I see the warnings from the deacon, I speed up. Chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 7. We won't read that portion. I'll let you read that later as homework. 
But here, in this section, Peter teaches that all of this pertains to their personal lives and relationships. Slaves and masters, wives and husbands. Like the Israelites in Egypt, I didn't mean to say that wives living with their husbands are like the slaves living in Egypt. I didn't mean that. Uh, you're not to take it so far. But if they suffer for doing good, and now we, we said last week that there's some indication that there is some form of uh, distress, persecution. For the Jewish Christians here, rejection from their own co-religionists and community, and for the Gentiles, official persecution from the state. But if they suffer in this way, they are following the example of Christ, who suffered and bore their sins, St. Peter says, on the tree. On the tree. You remember, we made a mental note there. And you looked at it in the interlinear translation. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 22. Now, if there is in someone's sin a judgment of death, and he dies and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not sleep upon the tree, but with burial you shall bury him that same day. For anyone hanging on a tree is cursed by a god, and you shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an allotment. This hanging on the tree was not a Jewish form of condemnation. It was a pagan form of condemnation. Uh, but when it occurred to an Israelite, it was considered of the greatest contempt. And so here we have it commented on in the Torah, in Deuteronomy. And Peter now invokes that very imagery, that powerful imagery of Jesus stuck to the tree, just as Deuteronomy described this horrific condemnation. Well, we'll sum up this part. We have a few minutes of grace here granted by the good deacon. Let me read to you Chrysostom. If we wish to understand the power of Christ's blood, we should go back to the ancient account of its prefiguration in Egypt. Sacrifice a lamb without blemish, commanded Moses, and sprinkle its blood on your doors. If we were to ask him what he meant, and how the blood of an irrational beast could possibly save men endowed with reason, his answer would be that the saving power lies not in the blood itself, but in the fact that it is a sign of the Lord's blood. In those days when the destroying angel saw the blood on the doors, he did not dare to enter. So how much less will the devil approach now when he sees not that figurative blood on the doors, but the true blood on the lips of believers, the doors of the temple of A Greek never invoked such a magnificent understanding of the Pascha, the Pesach, the Passover sacrifice. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 25, Peter invokes Isaiah. All right, we're far from Exodus now in Isaiah. But who could resist? Isaiah 53. St. Peter has to reach to Isaiah, where he says, By Christ's wounds we are healed. Directly from Isaiah 53.5. And referring to them in their former lives, these Christians, Jews and Gentiles, whose lives were as sheep having gone astray. Now, chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter returns to the relations within the church, and the prophets use the language portraying Israel as one, 
though obviously made up of many. And he invokes the 33rd Psalm, or the 34th in the Hebrew Bible. In the Greek, it's usually posted as the 33rd, in the Hebrew as the 34th. But here, Peter uses this beautiful song to prove that blessing comes to those who dwell in unity and peace, Jews and Gentiles as against the pagan and unbelieving world. So Peter's Agata continues, commenting on the spiritual meaning. Now he invokes yet a new Old Testament tale, and that of Noah, the deluge, and baptism. And this is breathtaking. He derives all the hortatory matters that he presents in the third chapter leading up to the fourth from the flood of Noah. What does this have to do with the Exodus? The Passover? That will have to wait until next week. <laughs> Deacon, I turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Father. Wonderful presentation. We're going to take a short break for those that can stay around, and we'll come back for about a five to ten minute Q&A. Yes, I'm interested. I think I've heard something about this before. In the first century, the lamb at the Passover was replaced by the matzah, which is bread. Is that right? Now, when did that? Before, after? Is there lamb at today's Passovers? Or could you explain that? Yes, there is not lamb at a Passover Seder today and has not been since at least the uh, destruction of the Second Temple. Now, to answer the question, uh, first of all, we know that the matzah replaced the lamb somewhere in the time of Christ. So today, this is a very firmly established tradition, in the Jewish celebration. If you have been to a Seder where a lamb was uh, served, the meat for the Seder was lamb, you were not to an authentic Seder. Okay? Now, I went to a Seder that a church put on, and we went through the first portion of the Haggadah, and then it came time for the meal, and they rolled out on a cart a lamb sitting up with its head propped up, which promptly fell off <laughs> to the horror of more than half the room who fled. Um, so uh, <laughs> we don't use the lamb at the Seder in any uh, authentic uh, celebration of it. Now, we don't know when precisely this happened or how it happened, but there have been some very firm theories on this, one of which is that there was a dispute, this we do know, in the temple between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were in control of the temple, and the uh, temple calendar was established by those in control of the temple. And there was a dispute, a difference, between the two camps, and the Passover was set a day apart, so that even today, we have the first day of Passover. This is according to the Jewish calendar today. There's a first day of Passover and a second first day of Passover. So there are two first days of Passover. Why? Because of this dispute in the temple calendar. And so this would result, the theory is, in the lambs being sacrificed in the temple court. Let's just use the Thursday, Friday, just for sake of illustration, on Friday afternoon, the Pharisees would have had the Seder for the Amharits, the common people, the night before. This we do know, that the rabbis concluded that one may celebrate the Passover, this is in the Mishnah, without the lamb, substituting the matzah for the lamb. This, of course, would have been then on 
Thursday if we used the Thursday-Friday sequence. On the Thursday, then, the matzah would serve the place of the lamb because the sacrifice wouldn't take place until the next day. Now, the one who's done a very elaborate exposition of this idea is Alfred Edersheim, Church of Scotland, Jewish Christian scholar of the 19th century, but it's been done elsewhere. I, I'm trying to remember the author from Cambridge University who built on this theory as well. So we don't know when exactly it happened, but it did happen. And of course, that brings so much more illumination to uh, this is my body, behold the Lamb of God. That's in my booklet, by the way, uh, the Lamb of God. All right. Father, yes. I heard you say in talking about uh, First and Second Peter that there is a parallelism, an echo, and a metaphor to be found in the earlier books of the Bible, the Old Testament. Could we expect to see that sort of parallelism, those echoes and those metaphors, in other parts of the New Testament? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, this Passover theme is throughout all of the New Testament. Keep in mind that I. Uh, presented Mark as Peter's gospel. So when we read through Mark, we have the echo. The Passover is very vivid in Mark. And then all throughout, certainly St. Paul invokes it, he even uses the language, refers to it specifically, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. And then even bring it forward further into the fathers who would also invoke the Passover, as Chrysostom did here, but many of the fathers did. But then we also have it embedded into the liturgies, the earliest liturgies. So it is all throughout the early Christian and even today. Had I not had the final sign from Deacon, I would have shown you one, but I'll have to wait. <laughs> thank you very much, Father. All right, thank you, Deacon. Thank you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.